this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Have you ever wondered how you would do human organisational performance in diving? I know you have. And today we're going to talk about that with the legendary Gareth Locke, the human diver. Let's jump into the intro and we'll get right into it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplu. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety and we do that right here. So hit that subscribe button, hit the like button, follow button, whatever it is on whatever platform you're doing. It helps us get more people's ear holes and faces. So today we're talking to the human diver, Gareth Locke. You might have known him um, a while now. He's been bouncing around loads of places all over LinkedIn, um, has been for a while now. Got puts up some great posts on LinkedIn. I love Gareth's posts. They're like little, like little, I don't know, like little snippets of knowledge so to speak um he's a great guy he's an absolute fountain of information he's one of those guys that just absorb 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 and then can like regurgitate like really jealous of that like, i really struggle with that stuff so i hope you're gonna get loads of this loads out of this today but we're talking essentially about the challenges um about taking human organizational performance into a really challenging and complex environment and a high risk environment in diving because that's what gareth does he specializes in human organizational performance practices within the diving industry which i think will really help you whilst you're like oh i don't dive this only going to work for people that do diving no i think it's good you'll be able to see his challenges understand his challenges uh, see how we, we kind of talk about it and then maybe that would make sense to something you're doing in your workplace and the challenges you're experiencing um so hopefully you'll get something out of this before we get into it though just a couple of shout outs thank you very much paradigm human performance for sponsoring this podcast and youtube channel paradigm human performance do what they say on the tin really they are human organizational performance experts they've got background in so many high-risk environments and it's proven practices um, of, of implementing human organizational performance in some amazing workplaces so if you're at that position where you've built some real strong foundations you're looking to take that next step whether it's training your, your safety team up whether it's training your operational team up or whether it's direct consulting paradigm human performance are those hop experts that you've been looking for so go check them out whilst you're on their website sign up for the learning organization webinar as well because that is a phenomenal resource it runs every other thursday now at 2 p.m and you can also go on there and get access to all of the backlog as well don't forget to check out rebrandingsafety.com there's loads of stuff that we can do to help you we now have um, our consulting arm up and running uh, with risk fluence so go check that out if you need some support um, with your holistic strategic risk management cultures whatever it is um, whether you're looking for better professional development go check out projectmaletium.com as well all of that's in in the description below we're also running a month free at project Malaysia right now so go check that out without further ado i'll let you get into my chat with gareth lock all right gareth welcome to the podcast mate thanks for actually the invite really looking forward to this james it's um gonna be insightful i hope for some people 
Hopefully, yeah. Like hop in diving or even diving in general. I think you're over you're over in diving or you know nothing about it. So I think it's going to be quite interesting for a lot of people. Yeah. I haven't done it once. So <laughs> yeah, when people talk about, you know, when you set up a business and you go into a niche, well, I've got like a niche of a niche of a niche. So oh right, yeah, that is, that is mad. Well, they say like they say in America, mate, the riches are in the niches, they say. Which I, mm. I really don't like how they say niches. Niche. Niche. Yeah, niche. It makes me cringe whenever I watch like a, a YouTube advice video and it's like, yeah, you got to find your niche. And I'm like, oh, it makes me itch. That, that, oh, like, exactly. Horrible. <laughs> I did actually watch, um, I, I started watching it ages ago and I finished watching it the other day in slight preparation for our conversation, the Netflix documentary called Last Breath. Was it Last Breath? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Last breath with Chris Lemons. Mate, yeah. that had me on edge. I was like full on, mate. I'm an emotional watcher. Like I, I'm quite an emotional man. So I'm bawling yeah. my eyes out. Like I'm like, oh my god, he's dead. And <laughs> spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! If anyone's not watched it, FYI, um, I'll give you thirty seconds. Uh, not I'll give you a couple of seconds. Spoiler alert! You can turn down now. Um, and I'm bawling my eyes out like the guy's dead. Oh my god! And then he just can walks onto screen, and I'm like, oh, I could have punched the producer in the face. It was so well done. <laughs> I was so on edge, and then I was like, oh my god, thank god he's alive. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. totally, totally. That was scary. But anyway, let's uh, let's get into it. Why don't you, uh, in case we don't know who you are, Gareth? Why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll crack on. Yeah, so I'm Gareth Locke. I'm the founder and director for The Human Diver, which is a, a small company uh, set up to bring hop human factors into the diving industry. Uh, and I started it really in January 2016. And for the first few years, it's really hard work. But I've now got to the stage where I have a number of instructors who are delivering my content literally around the globe. Uh, and I, I looked at my programs for next year, and I've got 160 people planned to be trained. And over the last five years, I've trained 400 people. So it's really good. I'm, it's growing. It's getting out there. And people realize that it's not a fad and it's useful. Nice. Nice. So, how, how did those kind of like we're going to get into the challenges i think of 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 doing what you're doing introducing a niche of a niche into a niche of a niche um but how how did those two worlds kind of come together the kind of hot world and the diving world so i spent 25 years in the royal air force in a whole variety of different careers frontline operator an instructor and then went in did a masters in aerospace systems the flight trials, research and development, systems engineering, procurement. Um, and that, that gave me a real broad view of what systems and, and safety are made up of. And um, it was while I was on my, so I, I certified diving in 1999 uh, when I was on holiday, couldn't sit on the beach doing nothing. So I, I learned to dive and I got exposed to some things that, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, it's only on reflection I realized there were big gaps in my training at that stage. Um, I then didn't dive for about five years. I went to South Africa when I was on the master's course and nobody checked my certification. We went diving. It was great. 
Um, again, didn't know what I didn't know. And then I went out to America and did some diving out there. And I had a close call. I ended up descending to about 30 meters without any buoyancy device connected to gas. So I sunk to the bottom and and, and I, you know, I had a, a sort of calm mind. I had a buddy that helped me resolve the issue. And we got, got to the surface okay. And it wasn't until I got back to the UK and started to get involved in a group of sort of technical divers who were having greater risks. It was like, oh, hang on a minute. There's some, there's some gaps in, in the diving industry that I hadn't considered. And from aviation, human factors and crew resource management or these non-technical skills, which is what I deliver, are just commonplace. Understanding that we make errors, we learn from them as long as we've created a, a just culture that allows that to happen. So I started to look at how could human factors come into uh, the diving industry. And I, I wrote a white paper in 2011, which didn't go down very well because I criticized the organizations that were out there um, because of the way that, that safety was managed and how human factors and system thinking really wasn't considered. I then started a part-time PhD at Cranfield to try and validate what I was doing and then gave that up after seven years because I wasn't getting anywhere. The industry didn't particularly value what I was doing. It was costing me money and I wasn't getting enjoyment out of it. There was, there was nothing there. So as, as I left the Air Force in 2015, I was like, well, what do I do? Uh, and I wanted to teach divers really about these, these skills, these non-technical skills because I've just done some work in the oil and gas industry, done some work in healthcare. It's just like, hang on a minute, we could really improve diving safety by doing, you know, applying this sort of stuff. And it wasn't until January 16, I ran a pilot class. In fact, I ran two pilot classes and people finished the class and went, I learned loads. We need this, have no idea how you're going to market it because it just goes against the whole way of, of, of how diving is is marketed in, in the general, that it's a, a safe, accessible sport for all. Mm. Um, and then since then, I've literally traveled around the world. And it wasn't until February last year that I trained up five more instructors to deliver my content. Up until then, I'd been literally traveling around Australia, New Zealand, the States, uh, Portugal, um, Europe, mainland. And, and it was people would sit there and go, this is fantastic, learning loads, it needs to be in the training materials. And it's slow, training materials from the training agencies, and it's it's slowly getting there, um, but it's it's a long journey. It's a long journey because there's no regulator, there's no, there's no real organisational incentive to bring human factors and non-technical skills programmes into the diving industry. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a bottom-up interest change rather than a top-down, make it happen. Yeah. Mm. I'm just going to so uh, put that laptop off for one second because you were skipping a bit then. Um, it sounded all right, but your image was skipping. So I'm going to turn my work laptop off because it's draining the internet, I think. Right. There we go. You're back. Uh, it's like nothing ever happened, right? Um, so you kind of, you had this kind of natural... It's interesting, is it? Because you think if you hadn't had your exposure to human factors from working in kind of aviation and, and your, your time within the Air Force and then had that hobby in diving, that like it would it kind of would have never or, or maybe do you think like the you think the light bulb moment was your near miss? 
like that kind of near miss? Uh, so that, I mean, there the are lots of near misses that are out there. I think the, the, the light bulb moment was this recognition that things go wrong and we don't deal with them in the diving industry. And I'm quite tenacious in, in this. I don't, you know, when I speak to other divers who have got an aviation background or a healthcare background um, or a high risk industry background, they recognize the value of this. And, and what I do is, is, is not rocket science. You know, there is a certain amount of irony that I'm taking stuff from high risk industries. And then I have people who are coming on my classes who are taking my materials and taking them back into those high risk industries. Um, so it's, it's, I suppose it's the, the perfect storm of having somebody who's, um, who's driven to make this change, to have the background knowledge from one domain and then be exposed in another domain. And I think it's, um, Steve Shorrock talks about these people as connectors. And I see that as, as where I am as a, as a connector across different areas. And I, and I love learning, you know, the, the amount of stuff that I pick up off LinkedIn and I go, right, how can I use this um, and, and try and shoehorn it in sometimes. And sometimes it works and other times it, it doesn't. Um, but it is, it's having that, that different mindset that says, let's look at things through a different lens. How, you know, don't be just stuck with a status quo. Just turn around and say, right, why can't we do that? Oh, because we don't have the time or we don't have the, well, what you're saying is you don't necessarily have the, the motivation to do it because you can't see the value. And I suppose that's an area that I have definitely developed over the last 10 years is understanding how the diving industry is set up, that it's, it's a difficult industry to make any money because it's, it's marketed as, as an accessible sport for everybody there's limited um, oversight and regulation. So in the UK, even though we've got the health and safety executive, they're really only interested in those divers who are at work, which is a very special classification. For the majority of diving that goes out there, it's a recreational sport like hill walking, mountaineering, rock climbing. And unless you've got a financial uh, or in-kind um, in, you know, interest, you, risk is, is managed in your own side. So it, that's, that's been a, a, an eye-opener for me over time. And I, I've challenged a lot of it. it it's not easy, though, um, because there's a, this fear that if we expose the hazards within the industry, then it becomes too regulated and, and it will cost too much money. And Joe Public sees all of the agencies broadly the same any day you know a diving agency is the same as another diving agency so why do i need to pay more money for say a quality organization because diving's diving surely you know you just get in the water you breathe in breathe out crack on um so there's there's a lot of systems that, that i think that's where i've i've had benefits from having a systems thinking Set, set of training as a master's degree of looking at things as they come together rather than just treating them in discrete silos or, or blocks that are there. It was an interesting thing you, you said when we spoke before, which are kind of, I think flows really nice to kind of follow on from what you just said in that 
were two things that I've kind of combined together. Statistically speaking, the sport is quite safe, statistically speaking. Yeah. But then there was another thing you said around it's not a life-supporting environment. Mm. So it to me, it's like it's exactly the same as aviation. Statistically speaking, aviation is a, is, is a really safe thing to do. You know, yeah. which is, oh, you're more likely to crash a car than you are crash a plane. Okay. But it's not like, like if something goes wrong up there, like, I'm, I'm, it's pretty bad. You know? Oh, yeah. So, so it, it is literally the same, but I feel like the flip is, is that acceptance maybe, and, and you've worked in both industries now, but in aviation, there is just an acceptance of mm. this, how bad the severity of this could be. Is that lacking in, in diving, that, that acceptance of how dangerous this really is? So, there's a whole bunch of, of cognitive biases at play. And, and I gave a webinar last week about the difference between sort of risk management and uncertainty management. Mm. So if you go to somewhere like aviation or oil and gas, you or, or healthcare to a certain extent, you, you can collect lots of data. You've got lots of events, non, um, you know, normal events, and then you've got a bunch of abnormal events that you can try and capture and classify. And the, the, the issue with general civil aviation is that when the consequences happen, they happen to 100 plus people at a time. Mm. So there is a massive emotional significance associated with you lose an airliner. Um, you know, in, in terms of the, the 737 MAX, they lost two airliners within a couple of months of each other. Now, that is, you know, unheard of. When, when it comes to sort of technical issues, right, ground the fleet and then you start looking a little bit deeper. Yeah. But if you looked at, you know, drawing a, 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 a closer parallel to diving, and that would be general aviation. So light aircraft, non-fair paying passengers, little Cherokees or, you know, just little puddle jumpers that are out there. Now in the States, the sort of the data, if you look at the, the NTSB or the FAA data, you're looking at around about three to 400 fatalities a year from general aviation. Now, those happening in ones and twos. So I can see you raise your eyebrows like, really? Um, and, but if you, you know, so that's ones and twos. And so there isn't the same emotional significance, the severity bias that's there. But if you crashed three regional airliners every year and you put 400 passengers into the ground, that would be a different thing. Mm. And that's part of the thing when we talk about diving is when fatalities happen, they happen in single events and they, they happen dotted around the place. We, we have no idea what the diving population is. We have no real idea of how many dives take place. So the risks that we have, a real sort of wet finger in the air and say, it's about this. And the numbers are anywhere between about one in 150,000 and one in 300,000 dives will end up as a fatality. But my simple brain says, I'm not going to do 150,000 dives or 300,000 dives. Therefore, statistically, it's a safe sport. And so I'm not managing risk per se, I'm managing emotions. Mm. And because the industry is not very good at talking about the near misses that happen, we, we, we can we can't hide the fatalities, although in some places they do, they just don't appear in the data. Um, in the majority of the sort of, I'm gonna say established environment, established worlds, um, fatalities get reported and so they, 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 
you know, you, you can't hide them. But near misses, when it could be uh, a rapid ascent or it could be running out of gas or it could be having decompression sickness, those are voluntary reporting or reported in a voluntary manner. And they're reported to a whole bunch of disparate systems that are out there that aren't necessarily connected. So people aren't aware of the genuine um, occurrence, you know, in, in terms of a number point of view. And so our simple brains go, I don't hear about these things, therefore they don't happen. Uh, and so our perception and therefore acceptance of risk is very different to the, the sort of the aviation environment where it's quite obvious when things go wrong, you end up with an aircraft crash. But actually, loads of aircraft have technical faults and, and, and things go wrong. But it's only when they hit the media and people go, oh, look, look. And then, you know, the, you, you plan to fail safely. You know, one of the, the key things about human and organizational performance is the capacity to fail safely. So even if you end up with an engine fire and you end up shutting down on the runway, you've got slides that get the passengers out the aircraft. Mm. In diving, we don't we don't consider either side of that sort of bow tie framework of you know the the uh, the presence of barriers and defences to prevent an event and the capacity of the system to fail safely afterwards. There's there's not really much that looks at how to manage uncertainties and risk in that side. So it, it it's a I'm going to say a challenge when when people are informed. They then, you know, they understand human factors, they understand the human and organization performance issues. You've, you've taken sort of the, the blinkers off and they start seeing things. And it's like, ah, I, I'm seeing the world differently now. And I can see all of these things. But it's that bit, you know, that, that says, do I really do I really want to understand what's out there? Because sometimes naivety is, is, is a great place to be. Mm. Um, I'll just swim around and follow people, you know. It's, it's it's a great place. It's boys, like, is you interested to talk about how, like, what exists now? Like, how is is kind of safety managed as is, like, right now? Because it's it was mind blowing to me that, and I, and I suppose um, it was mind blowing to me that in theory I could just go and I could buy a tank off eBay, buy a wetsuit off eBay, and off I go. I'll jump in yeah. the off sea and uh, see you later. And um, and I suppose you could say, well, you could do that with a car. You know, you don't know how to drive, but you can go and get a car tomorrow. Okay, yeah, maybe you could, but it does just blow my mind that you can do something in in something that is like the ocean or the sea, which has got to be the most unpredictable environment, probably in on Earth, and full of creatures that are really unpredictable. And and the only place where creatures make us look really unbelievably small. And it's just like, it just blows my mind that we're, I'm a, we're just seem to be kind of really, may, I don't know, maybe naive about the risk to it. Like it, it's, you see it not just in diving as well, don't you? Like people just take the sea, like cliff diving, or off you go. Mm. Yeah, just go for a swim. And I love us. I love a swim. I love water. Anytime I go past a body of water, I want to jump in it. But I've always had this kind of natural fear of it as well, just because I had nearly drowned as a kid. Natural respect, I think, is probably a better term rather than being, yeah. you know, and it's understanding the, the the hazards that are there. Now, diving is marketed as a, as a safe sport for all. And, you know, 
within reason it is accessible to most people yeah it's um the the, the regulation and how risk is managed at I'm going to say a global level and then an organizational level and down to the individual is, is quite interesting that, as I said, there is no formal global regulatory body that sits above all of the training agencies. There is a, an organizer or a couple of organizations, th- things like the World Recreational Scuba Training Council. They look after all of the the, the, the organizations like PADI and NAWI and SSI, uh, RAY, GUI, they, they, they sit there at, at a level and say, these are what the international standards of a, a diver training course would look like. But they don't go into the nuances of how that would be delivered and how quality would be managed. So there is a requirement to have some form of feedback, a quality control. So the agencies have at the end of a training course, you will fill in a feedback form and say, you know, certain questions that are there. Most of those are about sort of compliance rather than, I'm going to say, the standards or, or, or the quality that's there. As long as you've ticked these boxes, then it was considered an acceptable course. Hmm. So the, 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 RS, the, the, the RSTC, the Recreational Scuba Training Council, and another organization called the Rebreather Training Council, they are made up of the training organizations that then inherit the regulations that come down. So you will have that Recreational Scuba Training Council made up of the training agencies that have to execute standards. Well, it's not in their interest to increase the the stringentness or the, the, the detail that goes into those standards because it will have, well, likely have a commercial impact yeah. on retraining all your instructors, upping the skills, upping the quality that's there. So there is a, you know, it's self-regulated. And there is a fear that if people like the HSC or OSHA in the States get involved in how diving is delivered, then actually the costs will go up most, I don't know, sweeping generalization. I think it's a fair assumption. Um, Most diving instructors are not full-time instructors. They're hobbyists. So their primary income doesn't come from the diving industry. It comes from whatever their daytime jobs are. And so you're in a situation where you have full-time instructors who are trying to make a living out of this and charge what is a a, a good day rate uh, for for a course compared to others who are charging really cheap prices. And that drives the bottom, you know, the price down because – a consumer will sit there and go, well, hang on a minute, there's an instructor there that charges X amount and there's an instructor charges twice as much as that. Mm. Hang on a minute, they've got the same agency badge and it's the same course. Why would I go with a person that charges twice as much? Yeah. Because they don't see what's involved in doing it. So there is a constant tension that sits there between how do we make money out of this and how do we manage safety? So it's that Rasmussen's three-part bit of, uh, finance, workload, and safety. And that tension is sitting there going, how do we manage this all the time? Mm. And, and sure enough, when, when bad things happen and they hit the media, so I'm gonna, I, about eight years ago, I would say, seven or eight years ago, there was a cluster of fatalities in the UK in diving. And I think we lost something like six or eight divers in a, a similar period of time, maybe eight weeks, 10 weeks, and, and, and just to put that in context, in the last 15 years or so, 
it's been between 10 and 24 divers have died in a year in, in the UK. So mm. it was this big cluster in the summer and everybody's like, ah, we need to do something. It's like, well, no, this is just the, the natural variance in data that's out there because they're all, they were, other than being um, divers and in the UK, there was very little in common with those events. Um, so again, how we manage that, that sort of perception of risk is, is quite variable. So the, the, the Recreational Scuba Training Council, they put some standards down and then the training agencies take those, although they've influenced them before anyway, and said, this is how we're going to deliver a program. They publish materials and those go down to uh, train the trainers. So instructor trainers or course directors. And though that role is to train up scuba diving instructors to go and teach the public how to dive. So there is a, a bit of an air gap that exists. The training agencies give materials over, the instructor trainers, the course directors, then teach instructors how to teach a how to, how to teach a student how to pass a class. So what happens to the diver in the real world outside of a training environment? The agencies in the main have very little interest in what happens out there because that's not their problem. They're, they're bounded by basically saying, is this a training environment or is this a real world environment? If it's a training environment, it's about adherence to the standards. And, and there are many examples where the standards don't fit what goes on. That whole work is imagined, work is done piece. Yeah. So the agencies are interested in adherence to standards inside the training and then what happens outside? That's not our problem. And yet that's where the majority of the risk exists because there are far, far more divers out there than there are in the training system. And nobody's looking at what happens outside. There is no formal investigation process that exists within the training agencies. It will be about compliance and the lawyers will be involved and maybe the law enforcement people. But in terms of a learning investigation that you and I would be you know used to in terms of how did something happen it's invariably focused on medical issues and maybe the last day prior to the event and it won't go further back than that um, because if you're thinking about managing risk of outside the training environment that's not our problem that's a that's a diver issue so it's quite easy to to turn around and say diver error without looking at the context and, and that local rationality that's there. Wow. Is, <clears throat> so is, so, so the training is kind of self-regulated. Is the diving itself regulated, like recreational diving? No. No, no, not at all. So I'm shaking my head and we're on a camera. So um, <laughs> no, I mean, the, it, it, in certain places, um, so Australia has got some requirements that you have to follow um, in the UK, not really. Yes, you, you talked about going into a dive shop and buying some gear. So, yeah, as, as an unqualified diver, you could go into a dive shop and you could legally buy stuff. Now, the, the, the shop owner or the, you know, the staff might have a bit of a, mm, are you sure this is the right thing to do? And, and you could just lie and say, I'm buying it for somebody else mm. um, as a present if you didn't, you know, if, if you didn't know what you were talking about. Um, but there's nothing to stop you buying all that gear, going down to a pier, jumping off the back, uh, and jumping into the water and, and going for a swim. And to a certain extent, that's how diving took off. And it's the same thing with 
sort of modern technology with rebreathers, which are complicated bits of equipment that mix the gas as you breathe and they scrub the, the, the carbon dioxide out. There are a number of hidden failure modes in there. So you could buy a rebreather secondhand on eBay or Facebook, whatever. Um, you probably can't buy a rebreather new without going through an instructor because they the, the, the manufacturers are quite, um, I'm going to say, aware of what might happen. So they're trying to minimize the risk to the divers. Um, but yeah, you could, in the main, you could go and buy some dive gear, off you go. Um, there's, there's no requirement to check certifications on boats um, and, and, and inland dive sites. You could fill in details, but there's no, no authenticity check that goes on because there's, there's this trust that people know what they're doing. Wow. That's kind of scary when you think about it, isn't it? Well, it's, it's no different than rock climbing. You could go into Cotswold Outdoor, buy yeah. a whole bunch of, you know, harness, some, some shoes, a whole bunch of nuts and wedges and cams, and off you go. Um, and I think the difference there is the, um, the perception of risk the visibility of the hazards are more, are, are more in your face than they are when you go diving. Because people know that, I'm going to say cumulogranitus, you know, the, the ground is going to kill you. Well, in fact, it's not the ground that kills you, it's the stopping that does. <laughs> um, and so that's quite obvious. When you get into the diving environment, well, people love being in the sea, you know, that they, they're used to swimming and they're not necessarily aware of some of the, the physiological challenges that are involved mm. and people get distracted. And if you're at depth, you're distracted, you run out of gas. Well, if you're shallow enough, you can swim straight to the surface, sort of 15, 20 meters or so. You can, you can swim to the surface and breathe out and, and you won't blow your lungs up. But there are you know, a number of close calls like that, but people don't talk about it. So we don't we don't understand how prevalent those issues are. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting when you put it like that. I suppose that's a really fair point. I could just go rock climb tomorrow, couldn't I, in a quarry or something? And, yeah. And, and yeah, that's a really good point. I was going to say something else, and it's completely left me. Well, and say you know, both you and I have seen all of those that those safety videos that end up being posted on on LinkedIn that you go to. Southeast Asia or the Middle East or Africa, where they're, they're working on scaffolding made of bamboo or the, yeah. the ones where the guys are putting um, like almost like fence panels at the top of a building and, and using rods to, to construct this. Mm. And people are sitting there going, what are you doing? That's, yeah. that's totally dangerous. And you're sitting there going, okay, that's how risk is managed in those environments. Um, we wouldn't consider it to be safe by our own metric but if you talk about diving, that is in the main safe. And if you take it to extreme, I have a number of friends who cave dive. So they, you know, and, and one of them owns a dive center. In fact, a number of them own dive centers out in Mexico. So they are in cave, they're above um, dissolved limestone. It might only be 10 or 15 meters deep, but they'll go back 10 kilometers into a cave system in a flooded case. And people are sitting there going, that's really dangerous. And you sit and go, well, actually, the rock is pretty stable. It's not going anywhere. 
it's, you know, you're well-trained, you've got some procedures, you understand what's going on, you understand the risks and you're minimizing the best you can. The gas management is done very conservatively. So you hold a, a certain amount of gas in reserve to be able to share gas. If you run out of gas, I can go to my buddy and we can air share on the way out. So the gas planning is dealt with that you have the capacity to fail safely as well. But people would sit there and go, why would you go in a flooded cave system? That's daft. And you go, but it's there. Why not? Yeah. That actually reminded me of what I was going to say. Um, then the, it's, it's interesting when you do watch like a lot of these videos and I've tried to draw the comparison in to, to my own failure in conversations on LinkedIn between work and sport or hobby mm. when we seem to have such a low risk appetite at work. And, I, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's what we do. Yeah. No tolerance at all in the workplace. So you you say you're on TikTok, right? And you watch a video yeah. of some guy walking along the edge of like scaffolding with a hard hat, and you're like, oh my God, why would he do that? What an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And you scroll to the next video, and it's a guy who's free jumping, uh, you know, a, doing parkour or whatever. Yeah. Parkour through through London. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're so cool. I'm like, hang on a minute. It's, like, it's literally exactly the same, <laughs> the same thing. Except when we're when we're in the sport environment, we just seem to have such a high risk appetite, um, mm -hmm. and and maybe like a, a bit of a naivety. Like I've always, I'm I've been I've been, I was cycling for a few years now, and um, I've always been attracted to triathlon. Like I, I just I'm fascinated. With people do iron yeah. and I thought one day I'm going to do it, right? And there's one thing that always oh, makes me uncomfortable. Sorry. I said I've done a couple of times and it's yeah, go on. So what well, makes just, it uncomfortable for you? You know when they start and yeah. everyone jumps into the water at the same time. Yeah. And, and I've watched um who's the uh there's a there's an Iron Man who's like an old punk, uh New York punk gangster guy. He's like proper gangster, but now he's just like this real enlightened spiritual triathlete Iron Man. And he was like, Yeah, like you know, it's, it's like normal that you get kicked in the face and stuff. And I'm like kicked in the face whilst I'm trying to swim the Northern fjords to win at the Ironman. I'm okay. Thank you. And I just feel like no one's asking these questions. I mean, it was, there was a triathlon on telly the other day. Was that in the Olympics or yeah, it was in the Olympics a while yeah. actually. And the boat yeah, relay, which was really quite cool. Actually Ironman relay. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. And they had um, one bit, they, they had the, the boat hadn't come out. So they started Everyone yeah. jumped in the water and there was a bloody boat in the way. And they were like, oh, you've got to stop. So I'm like, it's just a really good example of something that could so easily go wrong. And you've just put loads of people in a high pressure environment in water. It just makes me nervous in a way that someone's get kicked in the face and just like float there and drown. So I, I use a video of um, uh, wingsuit flying in the States. No, sorry, somewhere in Europe, there's an eye. So the, um, the guy jumps off and uh, he, he basically is following the, uh, following the terrain. And then you see this, this crack in the rock that's only about two meters, two and a bit meters wide. And he goes, and he flies straight, straight through it. It's like threading the eye sort of thing. And so I, I play this to the, the students and I say, so what are your thoughts? Oh, wow. Amazing. Awesome. And, you know, we write all these things down on a board. And you go, okay, so what would your thoughts be if 
he, he hit the wall and went splat. And there's a whole bunch of derogatory terms that I'm not going to talk about on here. <laughs> but it's just like, and so we are so heavily influenced by outcome bias in that sense. Um, and, you know, the, the same, that, that, that recreational environment, the, the risk is in the eye of the beholder. And I think actually in the commercial environment, you have a, as, as a management, as a leadership, you have an obligation, both a, a technical obligation through law and a moral obligation to look after people in your own um, charge underneath you. Yeah. When it's your own sport, how you manage that risk is different. And, and there has been, a, there's a bunch of research out there that says you can't take risk perception, seeking avoidance um, from one domain and apply it into another. So if you love gambling, uh, you, but you might be really safe on the road. So just by you know one, one perspective doesn't mean it applies the other. Mm-hmm. I think most people who are operating in high-risk environments who then take high-risk sports, they will be very aware of what they're doing and do it and manage it in a deliberate fashion um, rather than the recklessness. So they may be um, doing some, I'm going to say, reckless sport, but they're managing as much as they can, making things certain. And that's when you know, the webinar I gave the other night was the difference between risk and risk management and uncertainty management what we can change that language to say, how do we make things more certain? We're never going to get to zero. In fact, the zero is much higher in a, in a recreational activity uh, because there are many more variables that you're unable to control. But if we can increase the certainty of how we are going to do something and also how do we mitigate a failure so it might be rescue course or um, having emergency medical services nearby or having oxygen to treat you, both sides of that bow tie, if we can increase the certainty that those things are A, present, B, fit for purpose, and C, you've validated those processes, then actually we're in a better place. It just, from the outside, it looks like people are being reckless when in fact they're, they're, they're managing their view of certainty. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the disparity between work and, and leisure is, is an interesting one when it comes to risk perception and acceptance. Yeah. And there's something I keep coming back to, um, Gareth, in that over the last couple of weeks, I keep coming back to the same thing. I think the main, I was thinking about it after we spoke and then there was a gentleman who's going to come on in a couple of weeks, Bryce Lawrence. Uh, he's got, we, it came up with him and I was talking to someone else and it came up again. And I was thinking, do you know what the one thing that, the, the, the or not the one thing, but like one of the biggest differences that I'm spotting um, between these two, when people make comparisons between work and sport or work and military or work and emergency services, it's say that there's, there's two missing components in the workplace. In all of those sports, um, sport and uh, emergency services, military, you can make the comparisons 100%, but there's two things that they have high levels of competence you know these people in in sport have done this time to your point that guy in his suit hasn't gone through the eye of the knee the eye of the rock you know just that's the first time he's put a wingsuit yeah you know he's been doing this years and years and years working up towards that you know you're not you're not playing professional rugby just Mm. out of school you're playing years and years and years same as a military and then the other thing is that they drill 
a lot. You know, you're practicing, you're drilling, you're practicing, you're drilling. And I think there's two things that we, we don't see in the workplace. We don't see mm-hmm. high levels of competence and we don't see a lot of time allocated for what happens if this goes wrong. Let's practice that, you know, or oh, totally let, agree. let's drill going, things going well as well. Um, we don't see that in the workplace. And, and, you know, I totally, totally agree. And the, the difference there, I would say, is money. Yeah. So if you are looking at, you know, the competencies that are there, it costs time to do the training, the realistic training, you know, that sort of 10, 20, 17 model that's out there in terms of building competence. So 10% in the classroom, 20% coaching, mentoring, and then 70% on the job. Well, most sweeping generalization, most training is about that delivery of knowledge, tick, move on. Yeah. I've, I've personally experienced this when I've gone into businesses and said, right, here is a, a program to impart the initial knowledge. Right, now you've done that bit, let's do the coaching. Let's, let's have the follow-up that basically says, how do we join your knowledge to your work environment? Uh, that, that costs money. We, we, that, we, we can't afford that. And it would take time out of the workplace to do that coaching. Um, and so you end up with a sort of a compliance-based uh, approach that says, we've delivered some training, tick, move on. And you say, well, actually, what are you trying to achieve with that change program? Because that's what a, a training program is. It's about educating people to create change. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, from their risk management point of view, from the, the managers of uh, the leaders of the organization, if they don't recognize the risk that that education program is there to deal with because they've got an absence of bad things you know therefore they must be safe the value of an education program is is pretty limited in their eyes because what am i doing this for i'm spending money so i'm losing value and i'm not losing value in another way when things go wrong therefore that education is 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 not needed and yet it's how we recover that resilience and how do we um, how do we manage that? Because in the military, the, um, the emergency services, they can't afford to not have resilience. Yeah. Although if you're now looking at where the military is now compared to say 20 years ago, the level of training that's undertaken now, real training is far less. It's a lot of it is synthetic or simulated and you don't get the same um, the same effects, emotional effects. Anyway, yes, the technology is helping and that's, you know, allowing you to do potentially more with less. But some of the training is being missed out because you're not getting the genuine stresses. And I I saw something in papers over the weekend about fast jets moving to around about 10 to 20 percent of live training and the rest of it would be done in simulations. And it's just like, it, there's nothing that concentrates the mind as much as being very close to the ground at a high rate of knots because the the, the risk is the threat is genuine. Yeah. Um, so you may get some of the stuff out there. So yeah, what I was also, I thought you were gonna say, there is buy into the value of what you do. So that's something yeah. that, the, the, um, the ethos that exists, that if you look at the military, if you look at the med- medical services, I mean, both of them have got very black humor 
because of they, you know, why they they do what they do. And invariably, it's not because of the organization, it's because of their peers and the people they serve. Yeah. And that to me would be a a, a big difference to those services and the wider organizations. Now you might get some businesses who have really strong ethos and some really strong values and people will manage those risks in a very dynamic way and they will practice them because they recognize that if we don't succeed, we have a, a, an internal reputational risk because we don't want to fail amongst our peers, but we also have an external reputational risk that we can't afford to let up our clients, our the people we serve uh, down. Um, so when you look at divers or those who are um, driven in sporting activities, they will have a vision that says, this is what good looks like. Mm. And even within diving, which is a high risk activity, you've got a big spectrum from those who are spending loads of time practicing in the sea, in the quarries, making sure their drills are sorted in case the proverbial hits the fan to others who basically just pitch up, jump in, swim around. It's cool. Get rid of their kit. And, and that's it. So, you know, it's, it's easy to, to simplify what's going on, but there is always a spectrum that, that's out there and it's, it's picking those, those bits and, and those bit, those divers who are at the top end of their game, who are continually learning, they want to get better. They recognize the hazards in which they're immersed, they're the people that I end up training because they recognize, they sit there and go, that adds value. I can get better at what I do. I can be safer at what I can do. And invariably, I can have more fun doing what I do as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, that was not, I was going to say something, but actually, I think that's a really interesting point that you kind of finished off there. Like, you can have more fun doing what, you want to do because in theory you're you're able to push the boundaries a little bit more because you're because you're building that capacity to enable you to push the boundaries i think that's a really interesting way to look at it actually um totally that's a really interesting way to look. the one thing i was i was going to say actually like i imagine and the way you've kind of described the industry then it's it's collection of essentially self-employed people really there's it there's no real like diving uk to like a massive company that like you know like the sainsbury's of diving so to speak which which i imagine like like when i think about this like with all those traditional ways that someone might try to leverage uh kind of improvements of risk management within an organization they speak to a big company they don't really mm. speak to a self-employed person because it's like well, you know, you could get sued for loads of money because you're so big. Um, a freelance diver, you know, who does it for a hobby, is kind of not too bothered about that. Um, then you've but got- But they are insured and the insurance companies have lots of money. And that's where the problem exists predominantly in the States and it's moving more across to Europe. But you, you'd be daft to teach in the States without any form of, of liability insurance. And- when things go wrong, and it might just be a minor thing, litigation is one of the first cards that comes out. And it is costing instructors in the States lots of money for liability insurance. And in some cases, it might be pricing people out of the market um, to be able to teach because they can't afford to pay for their insurance. Um, so I, I get where you were coming from. 
go on, carry on. I was going to say, get where you were coming from, um, uh, because people are not going to go after an individual. Um, so they, they will go after insurance. And what happens as well, especially in the States, again, is they will try and litigate against a manufacturer or a training agency for, say, a, a, an accident that's happened, a fatality. And, and in, in sort of my, my experience of the States, it's throw as much stuff at the wall, see what sticks, and then go after those individuals. And there's been some fairly high profile cases in the States where the manufacturers defended their position because it would just, it would cripple them if they didn't. And so they ended up having some fairly robust lawsuits and they won, the manufacturers won, um, and, and rightly so as well. So there is this bit that says, look, we can't afford to lose these cases because it would just cause so much of a problem. Mm. It's like um, <clears throat> so complex, isn't it? Because even when you were talking, then I was thinking, oh, hang on a minute, what what are we talking about as an industry? Are we are we talking about trying to fix? Because the industry is really interesting as like what what does the industry deliver? So you've kind of got two aspects. Like so, when I think about diving, I think about you as a certified diver taking me out on a little little foray out on the sea. Here's the kelp forest or whatever. Mm-hmm coast of scotland or something like that all right there's that one side of the industry is like you taking out joe blogs not experience whatever but actually what most of what you've talked about is actually training divers so it's, it's like training those divers to become recreate eg go out and do what yeah. you so you kind of got like two sides to it in a way that i imagine where joe blogs is involved and they're taking out that uncom incompetent person do you get more of an uptake or do people listen to you more from that point of view because there's that higher percentage? Um, no. Most of my uh, students that I've had are those who uh, it's taken me a long time to, to build a reputation because they, they trust what I do and what I bring. And then they have their eyes open during a training program. It is really difficult to try and, 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 and I, I've been on a number of marketing courses, you can't sell safety. You can't sell something that says, especially in a discretionary activity, you can't sell something that says, I'm going to make you safer mm. um, because the risks are, un, you know, are, are unknown. Mm. And uh, when I first started, you know, there was a sort of standing joke. I'd pitch up at a dive site. Oh, Gareth's here, got his clipboard. He's going to make sure. And it's just like, oh, just piss off. Yeah. It's not about yeah. that. It's, it's looking out. So the message is about being better at what you do, having more fun, having more capacity to see what's out there. Mm. The problem is with the, the genuine novices, they don't know what they don't know. And even worse, they don't know that they don't know. Um, <laughs> so so they're, they're, you know, that, that, that sort of definition of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, I'm great. Look, I've, I've got this training and I can off you go, you know, I can go diving. It's like, right. You, because you've been taught again, sort of generalization, you've been taught how to pass a diving class, which isn't necessarily the same as how to dive in the real world. And that sort of environment happens in, in the corporate space as well, is you know, my limited knowledge of how safety programs are delivered. You train somebody how to follow a process, which may not actually teach you how to um, operate in the real world. 
you're against a syllabus that's fixed and you can measure that. But does that actually teach you how to be, say, a safety officer on site? Um, you know, how to build personal relationships. It's not about walking around and going tick, 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 tick. Yes, that's part of it. But that's not what the job is about. And that's the same from a diving agency point of view, a training agency. It's about teaching divers to go to, to qualify against a set of standards which have been written. Now, they may not actually meet what's out there. Yeah. Because if actually, if I only give you two thirds of the information you need, I can sell you another course. Mm. And, and so you have continuing it. Oh, well, what you need to do now, you've learned to, to get to 18 meters, is you need to go and out there and we can train you and we can take you to 30 meters and look what you're going to get to see then. Oh, cool. Tick, move on. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of continuing education sales that goes in. And the instructors in some of the agencies are really, that that's one of the key things that they're assessed in their instructor exam is how well did you sell the next set of courses that are out there? It's like, hang on a minute. I get why that's there, but that's not really what, what should be there. Because it's, it's fascinating when you like, like the, 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 the sheer lack of consistency on this, this whole thing. And, and, and I even like, even my own experience, my very limited experience with diving can, can kind of test to that. Like we went diving, I was, I think it was like Mallorca and, um, and it was literally right. We got picked up by this dude in like stereotypical diver like long blonde hair like short short split flops honestly like he was either a diver um, or a surfer like he was one yeah. of those. there was no way he was doing anything else with his life and um and he picked us up cool guy sound guy gets in the track he drives us to the thing honestly we had like a we had a like an introduction to diving in 30 seconds like and and my understanding of introduction to diving was like normally you do it in the swimming pool and then you do it like two days in the swimming pool then you go out to sea now we were straight in the sea so we had to they put all your gear on and to your point we didn't know what we didn't know and, and we that's a breach of standards for what you did because that the first part of that sort of introduction to to diving um like touristy type diving is you do the drills in a pool in a confined water environment no. um, now there is a bit of a, a get out clause and says you're um you can do it in open water as long as it's in confined water conditions or confined water like conditions but people wouldn't know that so yeah off you go you learn how to dive. we were in shallow so we got on a boat we went out to like shallow waters um, so it probably came up to about probably about our lip kind of thing. So yeah. we we could just kind of float a little bit, but it wasn't wasn't but it was enough yeah. for us to go underwater and and learn how to breathe and stuff, which surprisingly is harder than you think. Like <laughs> like I remember one of the the girls that came with us, she didn't do it because uh, she, she just couldn't freak out and like she couldn't do it without freaking out. So like going as the water comes up and still breathing, your brain is like, you shouldn't be able to breathe right now. What's going on? You need to hold your breath. And yeah. So automatically you start going, <laughs> and, and like, yeah. it takes a, a while to get through it. But anyway, the reason why I was telling this story is because 
interestingly, now thinking back on it with like my human organizational performance or human factors kind of head on, we have this running story in our family, which is really funny. But now I look at it and I'm like, wow, that was, that, that was a near miss. Uh, so we had this situation, really silly near miss, but but an indication, like a weak signal, essentially. Yeah. So I think, is it that, that that's like you're having a good time and you're okay? Well, that, that's that's basically no, that, the surfing, yeah. but you can basically, that's I'm okay. Yeah, and this and was that's just... This yeah. is freaking awesome, right? That was yeah. it. So, like a phone. If for those, I'm doing. I'm doing what you did now. We are forget this <laughs> podcast, right? So, like, make a phone. Anyone that's not watching this, make a phone with your hand and kind of shake it. Was what we were taught as this is freaking awesome, right? But my wife did the rock and roll sign, the the fingers, um, and your two middle fingers, like down. a bullhorn, yeah, yeah, like a bullhorn, yeah. So, but it's just running joke that as I'm. I'm diving, we're, we're swimming around and the woman keeps going like, you're right. Like saying, is this awesome? And my wife's doing the rock and roll side. So I keep trying to do the other side to my wife, like to go, no, it's this. It's just, but yeah. I can't talk to each other, but she just keeps going. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's this. And we get out of the water and she was like, I thought James, you were just having a really good time. And I was like, no, I was trying to tell you you're doing the signal wrong. But interestingly, that was a funny story. But imagine if yeah. that signal was a uh, I need I need to go up. Well, so totally that there are bits where so that I'm doing a, a signal, basically making a, a circle with my finger, forefinger and thumb, putting the, the other fingers up. That's an OK. Now, people, you know, are you OK? And you put your hand up and people can respond with that same signal. And you go, is that OK? Or are you just acknowledging what I've said? Um, and, and so, you know, having that, that's one of the things that I teach in the class is closed loop communications and the assumptions we make when people communicate one way. I mean, I'm putting my hand up as a closed fist. Now, in some diving circles, this diving groups, this means stop. And others, it means I have 50 bar or 500 PSI. So non-standardization of, of language um, is, is a, is a, can be a real issue. Yeah. Um, and so th there's lots of lots of issues where psychological safety, where people are un un are afraid of saying something because they don't want to look stupid, especially when we get the novices. And so I've got a number of stories in the book that I wrote and, and the blog articles of where people have wanted to say something, but they can't. And in fact, the documentary that I produced, thanks to some sponsorship from from Paradigm, if only there's one of the, the, the dive team there talked about, said, I wish I'd said something. I, I believed that there was something wrong, but I was unable to speak up at that time. I was going to speak up later. And, and, the, and unfortunately, the, the diver, one of the divers on the team died. And that is such a prevalent thing yeah. because nobody talks about authority gradient. Nobody talks about the roles of leadership as if you're an instructor, you are a leader of a dive team. Mm. Because you've not only got that psychological safety issue, which which pretty much every tourist type sport thing will will suffer with, like the classic Everest story. Yeah. Uh, he, he 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 
I don't know, was some form of a meteorologist or something. So he knew there was the clouds, a storm was coming, but he never said mm. because the leader was the leader and he said, well, yeah. so he goes. So that that's everywhere. Then then you go underwater with a breathing device. And now not only is there a lack of psychological safety, there's also a whole new language to work out through, through um, sign language in which, yeah. which is not normal sign language. It's a special type of sign language that's, yeah, that's yeah. sort of inconsistent across the world. Oh, totally. And, you know, you, you've now had your vocabulary set reduced to about 20 words yeah. through the hand, you know, through hand signals. Now, you've got underwater wet notes to, to write stuff, but invariably, you know, it's so one of the things I say to people is look, having a brief and then a debrief. So a brief, make sure that everybody's on the same song sheet before we get in the water, because it's much easier to talk on the surface as opposed to to get to the bottom. <laughs> what? <laughs> And they go, who's, you know, where are we going? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, debrief afterwards where people can learn from the event. And it's it's a way of saying, you know, what do we do well and why and what do we need? What can we improve and how? And, and the subtle difference to the debriefs that I try and get across is the focus on the why did it go well and how do we improve? The observations of what did we do well and, and what do we need to improve are relatively easy to do. It takes some serious digging to get people into how do we learn from this uh, and create change afterwards uh, in, in a structured format. So, yeah. Wow. Oh, I could probably talk about this all day. And one day maybe, Gareth, we need to go to the pub or something and just chat oh, yeah. all about this. Um, but we have been talking for over an hour. So um, I want to get some dinner and I'm sure. Yeah, if- no, that's cool. Me too. Mine's uh, I'm cooking my dinner. So uh- <laughs> Oh, I'm lucky. Mine's being cooked. I can smell it coming up the stairs and I can hear my daughter. So um, I you, just um, there's a couple of things. that. So obviously give a shout out to what you do. And if and if yeah. people are interested that just by chance there are divers listening to this and, and they want to um, kind of do some work with you or, or the work that you do that's not specific to diving, make sure you mention that. But also if you could just quick, quickly mention the film that you mentioned then and how people yeah. can get hold of that. Cause I've, I've watched that and I've been in a keynote that you've done and I think that's really powerful. Um, and it's really good. So if you can mention that as well, that'd be great. Yeah. So uh, the work that I do for the diving is uh, the human um, and all of the training and uh, the documentary, which is called if only, so that's in the menu bar at the top. Um, the interestingly enough, I have people who come on my courses who are not divers and they still learn from them. So there's online self-paced learning. There's a webinar-based program that I run three times a year, 10 weeks long. And then I've got multiple face-to-face classes that uh, that I teach. And, and again, those are all available for, for people in any business, software, okay. high-risk industries, healthcare, all sorts of stuff. Um, so if you want to get hold of me, it's gareth.lock at thehumandiver.com. And... Uh, that's you know I'm doing some work in a non-diving space for a couple of big contractors at the moment or big uh, big clients, um, and, and so I just love what I do. Um, and it's Christmas time, and actually here's a oh no because it's all come out after Christmas, so you won't get it. Uh, I was going to say we've got um, I've got an offer on, but there we go. I, I can't talk about that one. <laughs> so I'm raising money for a, a, a charity called Ghost Diving UK. Okay. uh so but we won't talk about that we'll, here's what we'll you know. could have had Paul, yeah, Paul, yeah exactly so yeah <laughs> no that's cool so 
Um, yeah, if you need to get hold of me, thehumandiver.com, and uh, everything I do is on there. Awesome. I'm going to put all of the links and stuff in the description as well. Yeah, James, it's, it, it's been a pleasure. Um, you can see how animated I am about this. It's And that's what keeps me going, really. Uh, it, it's not through the money, I'll tell you that. No, it's <laughs> yeah. I can I can attest to that, mate. Um, it's uh, I can see the passion. You're right, and and it's really it's a fascinating challenge that you're doing, and 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 I think hats off to you, mate, because just from the chat today and the chat we had uh, before, the challenges that you've got in front of you are rife and and yeah. complex. And fair play for for keep keeping going and doing what you're doing because there's a passion there, and you, and you just want to get it done and. Uh, I, I, I take my hat off to you on that, mate. So well done. And thank you for coming on and talking about it. Thanks, Russ James. Love it. And, uh, and good luck. We're taking rebranding safety further. Thank you very much. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Gareth. Um, I think it's a really good insight into um, a really challenging environment, like I said in the, in the beginning. Um, and and it, good for you to kind of empathise and see that other people are are dealing with these challenges. Sometimes when you're trying to take that next step in your in your journey, you can feel a little bit lonely. You feel like you're the only one because all you're seeing on, on LinkedIn is well, very perfectly curated success stories. So it's really good to see, um, honestly, the challenges that other people are experiencing and how they're overcoming them to give you some help and support as well. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance. All their details are in the description below. Learn an organization webinar. And if you're looking for hop specialists, they are the place to go. Don't forget to check out rebrandingsafety.com, whether it's social media influencing because you've got a brand to kind of advertise within the safety community, um, whether it's uh, consulting support that you need or whether it's um, you just want to chat or come on the podcast. There's loads of stuff we can do um, with you, for you, etc. Go check out rebrandingsafety.com. Don't forget to check out projectmillennium.com as well for your professional development, running a month free at the moment. So go check all that out. I'll catch you next week. Safe.